what is Bob Dylan? Or what is Bob Dylan in the 1980s? This is episode 11 of a Bob Dylan primer. And it's been a little bit of a gap between episodes, and I have no excuses for that. Only a quick apology. I was lucky enough to see Dylan perform recently, twice during his latest tour, which started in October 2019 and finished in December. The tour is taking a short break, but there are dates scheduled for Dylan to perform in Asia in the spring of 2020. Even though the format and intention of these broadcasts is to provide a kind of roadmap to Dylan's music and life from the beginning of his career, without commenting too much on current events, etc., since the series happens to coincide with me seeing Dylan live, I figure I might as well say a few words about my impressions of the two concerts I saw and heard. Starting in 1974, I've seen Dylan perform upwards of 30 times by now. I don't follow him from town to town on the tours, but this time around, I saw the second date of the tour in Santa Barbara in October 2019, and the second to last date of that leg of the tour in New York City in December 2019. And my impression after seeing the first concert was that it was one of the very best Dylan shows I'd seen in many, many years. It was certainly the most satisfying. And as the tour progressed and different audiences got to see Dylan, many people chimed in on the internet and other places and said very much the same thing. So the consensus is that this has been Dylan's strongest tour in a long time. And the New York show was wonderful and did nothing to disabuse me of that positive reaction. But it's hard to pinpoint exactly why the shows were so satisfying. Yes, the set list was fresh and interesting. Yes, the band was tight and sounded great. Yes, Dylan's voice was a little less croaky than it's been, and his phrasing on many songs was exquisite. Dylan played a lot of piano this time around, and it was really fun to watch him noodle around on the ivories. But it's not like you can say that Dylan's singing was the best it's been in years on every song, or that the musicianship was of a different caliber than in recent tours. My sense is that it's something more subtle. There was some kind of acceptance and understanding happening between Dylan and the audience that felt new. What Dylan proved, again, was that he has nothing to prove. And maybe for the first time, the audience at large is beginning to understand that at a deep level. And it made the listening and viewing experience extremely rich and enjoyable. My favorites, no big surprise, were the slower, ballady-type numbers. A slightly halting but still velvety new version of When I Paint My Masterpiece, on which Dylan crooned sweetly and created an entirely new way to sing the word beautiful, in which he turned that single word into a lullaby all its own. Dylan also dusted off Lenny Bruce, a song we talked about in episode 10, and he really delivered the song's promise that I talked a little about in that episode. After hearing this current version of Lenny Bruce, no one will ever think that Dylan is making any kind of joke with the song. Finally, Dylan did a version of Girl from the North Country, a song he's performed many times over the years in many ways, but never quite this heartbreakingly. I'll try and post some links on our website, which is www.abobdylanprimer.com. In the last episode, we looked at the years 1978 to about 1981, and Dylan made some great music in those years. But the overwhelming takeaway back then 
was that he had gone off the deep end of some kind of religious transformation, and it's taken almost 40 years for most people to reevaluate or put that era into some kind of larger perspective that includes Dylan's overall body of work. So now, getting back to our chronology, we're with Dylan in the 1980s, and this episode will take us to the end of the decade. I'm skeptical of arbitrary demarcations of time and years, but I'm also very drawn to them and focused on them, so I think a lot about the meaning of new years, new decades, new centuries. Coincidentally, today is January 1st, 2020. Ultimately, I think one needs to reject the sort of CNN style of branding of decades as some kind of homogenous time unit, because not only is any particular decade or moment in time an infinite multitude of different things for different people. For example, take the 1980s in America, that's something very different than what the 80s might have been in Cuba or Kenya or Nepal. And going even further, you could have two people living on the same block and a particular decade or year obviously are going to mean completely different things to each of those people. The 1980s in Chicago were different than the 1980s in El Paso, Texas. We can agree that these decade demarcations are completely arbitrary, and maybe the only use they have is to help us organize our thinking about time and history. Whatever sense you might have of the 1980s, punk rock or disco, time and real life are much more complicated than a compilation disc of hits. One thing that strikes me about the 1980s in the West, including Europe, but especially in America, Things were happening socially and politically at a deep level. Certain supports or foundations or the laces around certain institutional structures were being loosened, and most people were not really aware of this. And if they were aware, I don't think most people understood how drastic and permanent this unraveling would become. I think we were distracted, and while today we might look back at those years with a sort of wry smile about aerobics classes and Tom Hanks comedies, There was a lot of nefarious stuff that was going on that we didn't really become aware of until later, and maybe still haven't excavated completely. And also, whatever awareness we may have had about some of the clampdown that was taking place in the 1980s has been wiped out by much of what's come since, including the overwhelming erasure effect of the internet. As much as we think of the internet as a great repository and aid to memory and reclamation of the past, In many ways, it's the exact opposite, and it's possible that it's serving to wipe out much of our essential human memory and history. I don't want to sound paranoid here, and it's easy to see many concretely positive aspects to the internet, but I have a sense that there's also a lot that's being forgotten. Listening today to what's considered the signature music of the 80s is a proposition, and it's tricky because it's hard to pinpoint what that signature might have been. There are the greatest hits of so-called 80s music that have become karaoke standards that everyone seems to love more with each passing year, but to me, most of those hits feel like novelty records. I'm talking about music from bands like Soft Cell, Human League, Duran Duran, like that. The monster act of the 80s was Michael Jackson in terms of number of records sold, but there was also Madonna, there was Public Enemy and Bruce Springsteen, there was U2 and Run DMC, and there was some great rock being made by bands like X and The Replacements. 
like Bob Dylan, also from Minnesota. The greatest artist in pop music in the 80s was another Minnesotan, Prince. Prince released two albums in the late 70s, but in the 80s, he released Dirty Mind, Controversy, 1999, Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, Parade, Sign of the Times, Love Sexy, and the Batman soundtrack. Prince deserves his own podcast and a whole lot more, so we'll just leave it at that. So now we come to Dylan, and Dylan has moved through his religious period, and he sort of created his own vacuum because the passion and the fervor of his commitment to the religious material was ebbing, and nothing really grabbed hold of Dylan to fill that void. So this begins a period where Dylan is continuing to make music, but he starts to put out records that are more just collections of songs without any real unifying theme or through line. It's 1983, and the last we've heard from Dylan has been Shot of Love, which gave a little bit of relief to many Dylan fans who were taken aback by the purely religious music. And in 1983, the album Infidels is released. It's got a picture of Dylan on the cover, which is a little bit of a return to the old form, since neither Shot of Love, Saved, nor Slow Train Coming had a photo of Dylan on the front, whereas most of his previous records did. And it's a cool, slightly out-of-focus close-up of Dylan's face. He's got a little beard action going on, and he's wearing Ray-Bans. Pretty simple cover. The title of the album, Infidels, is interesting. It does have religious undertones, though it's unclear to me exactly how the title connects to the songs on the album. The theme of betrayal has always been big for Dylan, and the term infidel has a sense of betrayal within the word, someone who is not faithful. More specifically, it calls to mind infidelity, but more directly, infidel refers to a person who does not believe in Christianity. And so it's interesting that Dylan titled this first record after his Christian phase, Infidels, And the question remains, who is he referring to with that term? Is it Dylan himself? Is it his audience? Or maybe most likely is that he's referring to those souls out in the world who do not have or have lost any kind of faith and therefore are free to steal and plunder from the rest of us. And that theme is echoed pretty strongly in the songs on the record. The album was produced by Mark Knopfler from the Dire Straits, who also played guitar on Slow Train Coming. Knopfler gathered together a terrific band of musicians for the Infidels' sessions, including the great ex-Rolling Stones guitar player Mick Taylor and the megawatt rhythm section of drummer Sly Dunbar and bass player Robbie Shakespeare, who were already pretty big stars in the reggae world as musicians and producers. So Infidels kicks off with this tight little drum roll and then Dylan's voice over what can only be described as a beautifully produced piece of 1980s sounding music. And the song is Joker Man, which just happens to be one of Dylan's very best songs. In many ways, it's the best sounding song Dylan's ever put out, with the bottom being held down beautifully by Sly and Robbie on bass and drums. The best word for the sound is polished, which might sometimes take something away but in this case, it all comes together. And Dylan's voice is passionate, but beautifully controlled. The lyrics and melody blend together terrifically. And the song is about a mysterious, martyr-like figure, possibly Christ, possibly Dylan himself. Who knows? The next song on Infidels is Sweetheart Like You, which is a quirky little pee-in to some woman with a very catchy chorus, but Dylan throws a few curveball lyrics into the verses, including this twist on a verse from the Bible. 
They say in your father's house there's many mansions. Each one of them's got a fireproof floor. The third song on side one of Infidels is Neighborhood Bully. And the first thing that jumps out is use the guitar track, which is a full-on Rolling Stones riff. And I think Dylan and everybody must have gotten a kick out of having the second greatest Stones guitar player lay down this pretty monster backing. And with Sly and Robbie on bass and drums, the track really rocks pretty hard. And on top of that, it's a very angry, polemical song. And it's pretty obviously and pretty literally about the state of Israel using the term ironically in calling Israel a neighborhood bully in the sense that all these other countries consider Israel a neighborhood bully. But in fact, at least according to this song, Israel is simply fighting to survive. And so from a political standpoint, it's still in taking what might have been back then and still might be today, an unpopular stance. It's a very strong defense of Israel. I'll just kind of leave that out there. But what's cool about the song And what's interesting about the song, and what lasts, I think, is that if you take a step back and look at the lyrics in a more allegorical sense, it's Dylan making a very interesting case for how we sometimes treat those that we consider to be monsters, when in fact they might be just engaged in pure survival. And if you listen to the song that way, without the overt geopolitical link, the song has a lot of power and definitely makes you think. The last verse of the song is... What has he done to wear so many scars? Does he change the course of rivers? Does he pollute the moon and stars? Neighborhood bully standing on the hill, running out the clock, time standing still. Neighborhood bully. And again, the entire song is Dylan singing over this ferocious guitar riff by Mick Taylor. Closing out side one of Infidels is a song called License to Kill, which I like almost as much as Joker Man, and I think it's one of Dylan's really great songs. What's interesting about the song is that it's a fairly serious tune about how humankind is so consumed with greed that we're destroying ourselves. But the chorus refers to a woman on a hill who throughout the song is observing things happening, but what she's doing in the chorus isn't really connected directly to the verses. Still, the chorus throws this kind of mysterious and sensual cloak over these somewhat political or polemical verses, and it's a beautiful melody, and the band provides a great backing. So, Side 1 of Infidels is an absolute powerhouse album side. Flip over to Side 2, which is also good, but not as strong as Side 1. Side 2 has four songs, Man of Peace, Union Sundown, I and I, and Don't Fall Apart on Me Tonight. There are many outtakes from the sessions that became Infidels, and two of those outtakes are terrific songs that should have been included on the record. One of the songs is called Lord Protect My Child, and the other is called Blind Willie McTell, and both of those tracks were later released as part of the bootleg series. But we can play the pointless game of what if and imagine if Dylan had included these songs on side two of Infidels instead of, say, Union Sundown and Man of Peace. Wow, what an album that would have been. Blind Willie McTell in particular is a very special song and I encourage you to check it out if you don't already know it. 
I've included it on the Spotify playlist for this episode. Remember, there's a playlist on Spotify for each episode so far, called a Bob Dylan Primer episode and then whatever number episode it's for. About two years after Infidels came out, Dylan released a new album in 1985, Dead Smack in the Middle of the Decade, and it's definitely an 80s record, my earlier disavowal of categorizing things by decade notwithstanding. Anyway, the cover of this record is pretty ugly. To my eyes, the least appealing cover of any of Dylan's albums. It looks like it was put together with scissors and a pot of glue. It's got this odd computer-type lettering and a picture of Dylan with his hair in a giant perm, and he's wearing a silvery blazer, and the title of the album is Empire Burlesque. And your guess is as good as mine what the title might mean. It does seem like Dylan is somewhat preoccupied with nations and corporations and how they abuse power, especially at this time in his career. He thinks a lot about corruption and illusion on a political and personal level, and maybe the title has something to do with that, but who knows? So the record comes out in June of 1985, and if you look at the pop charts at that time, you've got a lot of Madonna. George Michael is big. Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears is a smash hit on the radio. So, in the context of that music, Dylan's new record, Empire Burlesque, sounded a lot leaner and meaner back then than it might today, given the background of what else was happening on the radio back then. The first song on Empire Burlesque is called Tight Connection to My Heart. It's hard for me to speak objectively about this song because, although objectively it's hard for me to see it as a great song, back then when the album came out I fell for the song and I still really enjoy hearing it today. When the record came out I had a giant boombox that weighed about 15 pounds. You definitely couldn't carry it on your shoulder, or at least I couldn't. And I also had a cassette deck in my old International Scout, and I just played Empire Burlesque over and over, and especially the first song, Tight Connection. And I still love hearing the song, even though it's kind of a sonic mishmash. For this entire album, Dylan used a revolving cast of star musicians, a real grab bag. Among a pile of other players, Dylan invited Roy Bitten and Steve Van Zant from Bruce Springsteen's band, Mike Campbell and Bemont Tench from Tom Petty's band. And the record was mixed by Arthur Baker, who was responsible for a lot of hit records at that time. And Baker used a lot of synth drums, which back then sounded really cool. I don't know how well the record is aged, but I was looking at a Rolling Stone review of the album from when it came out, written by Kurt Loder, and the review was extremely positive. Loader said the record was a blast of real rock and roll, funneled through a dense, roiling production, custom-chopped and channeled by remix whiz Arthur Baker. One outlier on the album is the stripped-down and beautiful ballad that closes the record called Dark Eyes. It's just Dylan and his guitar, and it's as pretty as anything he's ever done. The story goes that Arthur Baker felt the album needed one more track, and he let Dylan know that it would be nice to close with something simple and acoustic. So Dylan left the studio for a couple of hours and went back to his hotel room and then showed up back at the studio and they recorded the track. 
In July 1986, Dylan released a new album called Knocked Out Loaded. At that moment, Dylan was in the middle of a very successful tour co-headlighting with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Knocked Out Loaded is an album that feels haphazardly put together. Even when Dylan was recording quickly in the 60s and barely ever giving anything a second thought, there was always some higher intelligence at work that created these gem-like unities. But Knocked Out Loaded doesn't really come together. It didn't do well commercially either, and very few critics had anything good to say about it. There are only two solo Dylan compositions on the record, three songs co-written with others, and three cover versions. Still, I urge you to give the record a few listens and see what you think. A dear friend of mine whose taste I respect ranks this album among his favorite Dylan records, and there are some intelligent commentaries on the internet and other sources that offer a much more positive view of the album than most Dylan fans have. The most interesting song on the album by far is the rambling 11-minute epic called Brownsville Girl. It's actually an overdubbed version of a song called Danville Girl that Dylan recorded in 1984 for Empire Burlesque, and it was co-written by the playwright Sam Shepard. It's an epic hoot, funny and moving, with a narrative that kind of defines the term shaggy dog story. Nearly two years after Knocked Out Loaded comes out, Dylan releases a new album in May 1988 called Down in the Groove. Down in the Groove has been called Dylan's worst album by a lot of people and critics. What does this really mean, though, and what good does it do us to have an album labeled that way? The record is definitely a little bit of a nebulous mess, made up of mostly cover versions recorded at a handful of sessions with various mixed bags of musicians at various times during the previous few years. There are two original Dylan compositions on the record, Death Is Not The End and Had A Dream About You Baby. Not among his best work, but there are also two songs co-written with Robert Hunter, who was the lyricist for many of the Grateful Dead's most wonderful songs, and who will reappear again in a future episode in a much more significant way. The two collaborations with Hunter are The Ugliest Girl in the World, which is a pretty straight blues number with funny lyrics, and Silvio, which did get some radio airplay and has appeared often during Dylan concerts over the years. I'm not a big fan of that song's music, but the lyrics are interesting, Grateful Dead-like spin through Dylan territory. The remaining six songs on the album are covers, ranging from the Wilbert Harrison rhythm and blues number Let's Stick Together, which was also a hit for the band Canned Heat in the 60s, to the traditional American folk classic Shenandoah. It's hard to pin some all-encompassing label onto what Dylan was doing with his record. I think he was searching for something. I don't think he was particularly inspired by a whole lot at that moment, so he was digging through his musical memory to see what, if anything, might spark him off into a new direction. The record almost has the feel of a rehearsal session, but of course, I think it's worth at least a few focused listenings. See what you think. In addition to the four studio albums Dylan released in the 80s, he also performed live quite a bit in a bunch of varied incarnations. 
1984, he toured Europe with Carlos Santana and Joan Baez, and there's a live album called Real Live that contains some of those performances. And then in 1986, Dylan joined up with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers for a big stadium tour, which was kind of like Dylan playing modern rock star for the first time. And then in 1987, Dylan played a handful of stadium shows with the Grateful Dead, and there's a live album from that tour as well. I'm going to talk about Dylan's 1988 and 89 tours in the next episode, but these three mid-80s ventures out on the road have a few good moments. Still, in the main, Dylan's voice is just a little too pushed, and the live versions don't hold up very well. A couple of other extremely high-profile appearances by Dylan in the 80s were his appearance on the We Are the World single that was put out to combat hunger in Africa. And if you haven't heard that single in a while and want to be transported back in time, have a listen. Quincy Jones, who produced the single, deserves whatever awards have ever been made for getting all those disparate voices to come together on a single track. And Dylan does a pretty good job. He's certainly distinctive on the song. I can say that much. Dylan also appeared at the massive Live Aid charity concert in 1985, again to raise money to help feed starving populations in Africa. And Dylan was also featured at the first Farm Aid concert, which was put together to help American farmers who were under threat from corporate farming and other economic factors. I'll bet it's not too surprising that as we're talking about this somewhat fallow, somewhat brittle period of Dylan's work, as dire as it may have seemed at the time, that a change was about to come. And this change, while not a single shift, but rather a long unfolding series of transformations and alterations, would propel Dylan into possibly his most resonant and deeply significant work. And it's a period that started right then, in 1988, and has continued to the present day. And it's really these years of Dylan's output that I think create the true separation between him and all of the other great popular musical artists of our time. I have to admit that it's been a little bit of a struggle for me to make sense of this period in Dylan's work. We're really just talking about five or six years. Shot of Love kind of ended the religious period in 1982, so we're starting in 1983 with Infidels and running up to Down in the Groove in 1988. By 1989, Dylan was releasing a record called Oh Mercy, and that definitely signaled another transition. So we're talking 1983 to 1988, about five or six years. And in that time, Dylan released four studio albums, Infidels, Empire Burlesque, Knocked Out Loaded, and Down in the Groove. And the common consensus is that those albums represent a little bit of a downhill slide creatively. I'm not sure that thinking is super productive, but it is out there, and we've also got Dylan doing We Are the World, Live Aid, and Farm Aid, and the tours with Tom Petty and the Grateful Dead. Dylan trying out synthesizers and dance beats, and trying out all sorts of different musicians. So, after thinking about that, and thinking about it some more, it seems like Dylan, from this kind of very sure-footed creative stance that he really always had, something got shaken loose through the religious albums, and those records were so unyielding in their certitude that, I don't know, maybe it triggered something, or it was just Dylan getting older, I'm not sure, but what the 80s Dylan seems to me now, 
looking back is that it was Dylan trying to fit in for the very first time in his life, rather than just doing his thing and letting other people come to it. Even when he was 20 years old in Greenwich Village, maybe he was trying to fit in for about a week or so. But once Dylan met Woody Guthrie and started writing his own songs at a breakneck clip, he wasn't trying to fit in anywhere. He was leading the vanguard quickly, and then later he was off to the side a little with the basement tapes and John Wesley Harding and New Morning, but it never seemed like Dylan was trying to fit in. And that's exactly what it feels like Dylan was trying to do throughout most of the 80s. That's the best way I can make sense of what was happening, and it helps explain why those mid-80s records might have less resonance than other periods of Dylan's work. There's a lot of great music there. There's some wonderful songwriting, some great interpretations of other people's songs, some terrific live performances sprinkled in here and there. But overall, this period, which we'll call Dylan's fitting-in period, was a mixed success at best. What's interesting is that it only lasted for these five or six years, and then, starting in 1988, right at the moment that Down in the Groove is released, without any break, we'll see modes of writing and performing beginning at that moment and moving up to the present day. And that sense of trying to fit in, I think, disappeared. And one could say disappeared permanently or disappeared for good. So let's stay in 1988 for just another beat. Down in the Groove comes out in May, and a couple of weeks later, Dylan begins a new tour, which most people assumed was in support of the album. But it wasn't. It was Dylan almost in desperation mode. He put together a small band, just himself, another guitarist, bass and drums, and the song list was a grab bag of songs from Dylan's entire catalog, as well as a revolving series of covers. We'll talk more about this tour and its progeny in the next episode. But as we wrap this one up, there is an example of Dylan's fitting-in phase that was remarkably successful and which produced some ultra-listenable music that still sounds really great today. And that body of work came about after Dylan got a call from George Harrison, asking if he could come over to Dylan's garage studio in Malibu to record a song with a couple of friends, those friends being Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne from the Electric Light Orchestra. And these legends decided they needed one more, so they asked the great Roy Orbison to sing along with them. This new band coalesced in April 1988, just as Down in the Groove was about to be released, and just before Dylan started his new tour. And they recorded a track called Handle with Care, based on a song started by Harrison. And when the record company heard the track, they said the song was too good for a B-side. So the boys decided to continue working together, and they call themselves the Traveling Wilburys. They recorded an album called Traveling Wilburys Volume 1, which works beautifully and is full of great songs and a lot of humor. And the record did well, and the video for Handle With Care got a lot of play on MTV, and people couldn't believe that these tremendous artists with huge careers on their own had somehow been able to meld together in this new unit. A few months into this venture, Roy Orbison died suddenly in December 1988. And this was a terrible blow to all music fans and to this crazy new band of traveling Wilburys. The surviving superstars decided to continue on and release another album called Volume 3, 
it's thought that they left out Volume 2 as a small tribute to Orbison. And there's a lot to like about the Wilburys, and it's interesting to look at how the project revitalized the careers of not only Dylan at that moment, but also Harrison, Petty, Lynn, and Orbison, although Roy didn't get much time to enjoy the new shine. There's one track in particular called Tweeter and the Monkey Man that probably started off as a sort of good-natured spoof of a Bruce Springsteen song, but evolved into a hilariously surrealistic piece about a gender-challenged cop on the Jersey Shore. All humor aside, the song has a terrific driving motion and some surprisingly evocative lyric twists. Check it out. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your continued support of these broadcasts. Please share with your friends or people who you think might be interested. If you'd like to hear some of the music referenced, check out the public playlists I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to lend your support and find cool supporting content about Bob Dylan, including links to some amazing stuff. Again, that's abobdylanprimer.com. P-R-I-M-E-R dot com. And thank you very much.